This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Bleak House by Charles Dickens. Chapter 47. Joe's Will. As Alan Woodcourt and Joe proceed along the streets, where the high church spires and the distances are so near and clear in the morning light that the city itself seems renewed by rest, Alan revolves in his mind how and where he shall bestow his companion. It surely is a strange fact, he considers, that in the heart of a civilized world this creature in human form should be be more difficult to dispose of than an unknown dog. But it is none the less a fact because of its strangeness, and the difficulty remains. At first he looks behind him often, to assure himself that Joe is still really following. But look where he will, he still beholds him close to the opposite houses, making his way with his wary hand from brick to brick and from door to door, and often, as he creeps along, glancing over at him watchfully, soon satisfied that the last thing in his thoughts is to give him the slip, Alan goes on, considering with a less divided attention what he shall do. A breakfast stall at a street corner suggests the first thing to be done. He stops there, looks round, and beckons Joe. Joe crosses and comes halting and shuffling up slowly scooping the knuckles of his right hand round and round in the hollowed palm of his left, kneading dirt with a natural pestle and mortar. What a dainty repast to Joe is then set before him, and he begins to gulp the coffee and gnaw the bread and butter, looking anxiously about him in all directions as he eats and drinks, like a scared animal. But he is so sick and miserable that even hunger has abandoned him. "'I thought I was almost a starvin', sir,' says Joe, soon putting down his food. "'But I don't know nothing, not even that. I don't care for eating whittles, yet for drinking on em. And Joe stands shivering and looking at the breakfast wonderingly. Alan Woodcourt lays his hand upon his pulse and on his chest. "'Draw a breath, Joe.' "'It draws,' says Joe, "'as heavy as a cart.' he might add, and rattles like it. But he only mutters, I'm a-moving on, sir. Alan looks about for an apothecary's shop. There is none at hand, but a tavern does as well or better. He obtains a little measure of wine, and gives the lad a portion of it very carefully. He begins to revive almost as soon as it passes his lips. We may repeat that dose, Joe, observes Alan, after watching him with his attentive face. So, now we will take five minutes' rest, and then go on again. Leaving the boy sitting on the bench of the breakfast stall, with his back against an iron railing, Alan Woodcart paces up and down in the early sunshine, casting an occasional look towards him without appearing to watch him. It requires no discernment to perceive that he is warmed and refreshed. If a face so shaded can brighten, his face brightens somewhat, and by little and little he eats the slice of bread he had so hopelessly laid down. Observant of these signs of improvement, Alan engages him in conversation, 
and elicits to his no small wonder the adventures of the lady in the vale with all its consequences joe slowly munches as he slowly tells it when he has finished his story and his bread they go on again intending to refer his difficulty in finding a temporary place of refuge for the boy to his old patient zealous little miss flight alan leads the way to the court where he and joe first foregathered but all is changed at the rag and bottle shop miss flight no longer lodges there it is shut up and a hard-featured female much obscured by dust whose age is a problem but who indeed no other than the interesting judy is tart and spare in her replies these sufficing however to inform the visitor that miss flight and her birds are domiciled with a mrs blinder in bellyard he repairs to that neighbouring place where miss flight who rises early that she may be punctual at the divan of justice held by her excellent friend the chancellor comes running downstairs with tears of welcome and with open arms my dear physician cries miss flight my meritorious distinguished honourable officer she uses some odd expressions but is as cordial and full of heart as sanity itself can be more so than it often is alan very patient with her waits until she has no more raptures to express then points out joe trembling in a doorway and tells her how he comes there where can i lodge him hereabouts for the present now you have a fund of knowledge and good sense and can advise me miss flight mighty proud of the compliment sets herself to consider but it is long before a bright thought occurs to her mrs blinder is entirely let and she herself occupies poor gridley's room gridley exclaims miss flight clapping her hands after a twentieth repetition of this remark gridley to be sure of course my dear physician general george will help us out it is hopeless to ask for any information about general george and would be though miss flight had not already run upstairs to put her pinched bonnet and her poor little shawl and to arm herself with her reticule of documents but as she informs her physician in her disjointed manner on coming down in full array that general george whom she often calls upon knows her dear fitzjarndyce and takes a great interest in all connected with her Alan is induced to think that they may be in the right way. So he tells Joe, for his encouragement, that this walking about will soon be over now, and they repair to the generals. Fortunately, it is not far. From the exterior of George's shooting gallery, and the long entry, and the bare perspective beyond it, Alan Woodcourt augurs well he also descries promise in the figure of mr george himself striding towards them in his morning exercise with his pipe in his mouth no stock on and his muscular arms developed by broadsword and dumbbell weightily asserting themselves through his light shirt-sleeves your servant sir says mr george with a military salute 
good-humouredly smiling all over his broad forehead up into his crisp hair he then defers to miss flight as with great stateliness and at some length she performs the courtly ceremony of presentation he winds it up with another your servant sir and another salute excuse me sir a sailor i believe says mr george i am proud to find i have the air of one returns alan but i am only a sea-going doctor indeed sir i should have thought you were a regular bluejacket myself alan hopes mr george will forgive his intrusion the more readily on that account and particularly that he will not lay aside his pipe which in his politeness he has testified some intention of doing you are very good sir returns the trooper as i know by experience that it's not disagreeable to miss flight and since it's equally agreeable to yourself and finishes the sentence by putting it between his lips again alan proceeds to tell him all he knows about joe unto which the trooper listens with a grave face and that's the lad sir is it he inquires looking along the entry to where joe stands staring up at the great letters on the whitewashed front which have no meaning in his eyes that's he says alan and mr george i am in this difficulty about him i am unwilling to place him in a hospital even if i could procure him immediate admission because i foresee that he would not stay there many hours if he could be so much as got there the same objection applies to a workhouse supposing i had the patience to be evaded and shirked and handed about from post to pillar in trying to get him into one which is a system that i don't take kindly to no man does sir returns mr george i am convinced that he would not remain in either place because he is possessed by an extraordinary terror of this person who ordered him to keep out of the way in his ignorance he believes this person to be everywhere and cognizant of everything i ask your pardon sir says mr george but you have not mentioned that party's name is it a secret sir the boy makes it one but his name is bucket bucket the detective sir the same man the man is known to me sir returns the trooper after blowing out a cloud of smoke and squaring his chest and the boy is so far correct that he undoubtedly is a rum customer mr george smokes with a profound meaning after this and surveys miss flight in silence now i wish mr jarndyce and miss summerson at least to know that this joe who tells so strange a story has reappeared and to have it in their power to speak with him if they should desire to do so therefore i want to get him for the present moment into any poor lodging kept by decent people where he would be admitted decent people and joe mr george says alan following the direction of the trooper's eye along the entry have not been much acquainted as you see hence the difficulty do you happen to know any one in this neighbourhood who would receive him for a while on my paying for him beforehand 
as he puts the question he becomes aware of a dirty-faced little man standing at the trooper's elbow and looking up with an oddly twisted figure and countenance into the trooper's face after a few more puffs at his pipe the trooper looks down askant at the little man and the little man winks up at the trooper well sir says mr george i can assure you that i would willingly be knocked on the head at any time if it would be at all agreeable to miss summerson and consequently i esteem it a privilege to do that young lady any service however small we are naturally in the vagabond way here sir both myself and phil you see what the place is you are welcome to a quiet corner of it for the boy if the same would meet your views no charge made except for rations we are not in a flourishing state of circumstances here sir we are liable to be tumbled out neck and crop at a moment's notice however sir such as the place is and so long as it lasts here it is at your service with a comprehensive wave of his pipe mr george places the whole building at his visitor's disposal I take it for granted, sir, he adds, you being one of the medical staff, that there is no present infection about this unfortunate subject. Alan is quite sure of it. Because, sir, says Mr. George, shaking his head sorrowfully, we have had enough of that. His tone is no less sorrowfully echoed by his new acquaintance. Still, I am bound to tell you, observes Alan, after repeating his former assurance, that the boy is deplorably low and reduced, and that he may be, I do not say that he is, too far gone to recover. Do you consider him in present danger, sir? inquires the trooper. Yes, I fear so. Then, sir, returns the trooper in a decisive manner, it appears to me, being naturally of the vagabond way myself, that the sooner he comes out of the street the better. You, Phil, bring him in. Mr. Squad tacks out, all on one side, to execute the word of command, and the trooper, having smoked his pipe, lays it by. Joe is brought in. He is not one of Mrs. Particle's tuck-a-poo Indians. He is not one of Mrs. Jellyby's lambs, being wholly unconnected with Boreabulagoo. He is not softened by distance and unfamiliarity. He is not a comfort or convenience to any one as a pretense afar off for leaving evil things at hand alone. He is not a genuine foreign-grown savage. He is the ordinary home-made article, dirty, ugly, disagreeable to all the senses, in body a common creature of the common streets, only in soul a heathen. Homely filth begrimes him homely parasites devour him homely sores are in him homely rags are on him native ignorance the growth of english soil and climate sinks his immortal nature lower than the beasts that perish stand forth joe in uncompromising colours from the sole of thy foot to the crown of thy head there is nothing interesting about thee he shuffles slowly into Mr. George's gallery and stands huddled together in a bundle, looking all about the floor. 
he seems to know that they have an inclination to shrink from him, partly for what he is and partly for what he caused. He, too, shrinks from them. He is not of the same order of things, not of the same place in creation. He is of no order and no place, neither of the beasts nor of humanity. "'Look here, Joe,' says Alan. "'This is Mr. George.' Joe searches the floor for some time longer, then looks up for a moment and then down again. "'He is a kind friend to you, for he is going to give you lodging room here.' Joe makes a scoop with one hand, which is supposed to be a bow. After a little more consideration, and some backing and changing of the foot on which he rests, he mutters that he is very thankful. "'You are quite safe here. All you have to do at present is to be obedient and to get strong. And mind you tell the truth here, whatever you do, Joe.' "'Wish you may die if I don't try, sir,' says Joe, reverting to his favourite declaration. "'I never done nothing yet but what you knows on to get myself into no trouble.' I never was in no other trouble at all, sir, except not knowing no thing and starration. I believe it. Now attend to Mr. George. I see he's going to speak to you. My intention merely was, sir, observes Mr. George, amazingly broad and upright, to point out to him where he can lie down and get a thorough good dose of sleep. Now look here. As the trooper speaks, he conducts them to the other end of the gallery and opens one of the little cabins. There you are, you see. Here is a mattress, and here you may rest, on good behavior, as long as Mr. I ask your pardon, sir. He refers apologetically to the card Alan has given him. Mr. Woodcourt pleases. Don't you be alarmed if you hear shots. They'll be aimed at the target and not you. Now, there's another thing I would recommend, sir, says the trooper, turning to his visitor. Phil, come here. Phil bears down upon them, according to his usual tactics. Here is a man, sir, who was found, when a baby, in the gutter. Consequently, it is to be expected that he takes a natural interest in this poor creature. You do, don't you, Phil? Certainly and surely I do, Governor, is Phil's reply. Now, I was thinking, sir, says Mr. George, in a martial sort of confidence, as if he were giving his opinion in a council of war at a drumhead, that if this man were to take him to a bath, and was to lay out a few shillings in getting him one or two coarse articles. Mr. George, my considerate friend, returns Alan, taking out his purse, it is the very favour I would have asked. Phil Squad and Joe are sent out immediately on this work of improvement. Miss Flight, quite enraptured by her success, makes the best of her way to court, having great fears that otherwise her friend the Chancellor may be uneasy about her, or may give the judgment she has so long expected in her absence, and observing which, you know, my dear physician and general, after so many years, would be too absurdly unfortunate. Alan takes the opportunity of going out to procure some restorative medicines, and obtaining them near at hand, soon returns to find the trooper walking up and down the gallery, and to fall into step and walk with him. 
"'I take it, sir,' says Mr. George, "'that you know Miss Summerson pretty well.' "'Yes, it appears.' "'Not related to her, sir?' "'No, it appears.' "'Excuse the apparent curiosity,' says Mr. George. "'It seemed to me probable that you might take more than a common interest in this poor creature, because Miss Summerson had taken that unfortunate interest in him. "'Tis my case, sir, I assure you. "'And mine, Mr. George.' The trooper looks sideways at Alan's sunburnt cheek and bright dark eye, rapidly measures his height and build, and seems to approve of him. "'Since you have been out, sir, I have been thinking that I unquestionably know the rooms in Lincoln's Inn Fields, where Bucket took the lad, according to his account. Though he is not acquainted with the name, I can help you to it. It's Tulkinghorn. That's what it is.' Alan looks at him inquiringly, repeating the name. "'Tulkinghorn. That's the name, sir.' I know the man, and know him to have been in communication with Bucket before, respecting a deceased person who had given him offence. I know the man, sir, to my sorrow. Alan naturally asks what kind of man he is. What kind of man? Do you mean to look at? I think I know that much of him. I mean to deal with. Generally, what kind of man? Why, then I'll tell you, sir returns the trooper, stopping short and folding his arms on his square chest so angrily that his face fires and flushes all over. He is a confoundingly bad kind of man. He is a slow torturing kind of man. He is no more like flesh and blood than a rusty old carbine is. He is a kind of man, by George, that has caused me more restlessness and more uneasiness and more dissatisfaction with myself than all other men put together. That's the kind of man Mr. Tulkinghorn is. I am sorry, says Alan, to have touched so sore a place. Sore? The trooper plants his legs wider apart, wets the palm of his broad right hand, and lays it on the imaginary moustache. It's no fault of yours, sir, but you shall judge. He has got a power over me. He's the man I spoke of just now, as being able to tumble me out of this place neck and crop. He keeps me on a constant seesaw. He won't hold off, and he won't come on. If I have a payment to make him, or time to ask him for, or anything to go to him about, he don't see me, don't hear me, passes me on to Melchizedek's in Clifford's Inn, Melchizedek's in Clifford's Inn passes me back again to him. He keeps me prowling and dangling about him, as if I was made of the same stone as himself. Why, I spend half my life now pretty well, loitering and dodging about his door. What does he care? Nothing. Just as much as the rusty old carbine I have compared him to. He chafes and goads me till, bah, nonsense, I am forgetting myself, Mr. Woodcourt. The trooper resumes his march. All I say is, he is an old man, but I am glad I shall never have the chance of setting spurs to my horse and riding at him in a fair field. For if I had that chance in one of the humours he drives me into, he'd go down, sir. Mr. George has been so excited that he finds it necessary to wipe his forehead on his shirt-sleeve. 
even while he whistles his impetuosity away with the national anthem some involuntary shakings of his head and heavings of his chest still linger behind not to mention an occasional hasty adjustment with both hands of his open shirt-collar as if it were scarcely open enough to prevent his being troubled by a choking sensation in short alan woodcourt has not much doubt about the going down of mr tulkinghorn on the field referred to joe and his conductor presently return and joe is assisted to his mattress by the careful phil to whom after due administration of medicine by his own hands alan confides all needful means and instructions the morning is by this time getting on apace he repairs to his lodgings to dress and breakfast, and then, without seeking rest, goes away to Mr. Jarndyce to communicate his discovery. With him, Mr. Jarndyce returns alone, confidentially telling him that there are reasons for keeping this matter very quiet indeed, and showing a serious interest in it. To Mr. Jarndyce, Joe repeats in substance what he said in the morning without any material variation only that cart of his is heavier to draw and draws with a hollower sound let me lay here quiet and not be chivied no more falters joe and be so kind any person as is a passing nigh where i used for to sweep as just i say to miss snagsby that joe what he known once is a movin on right forwards with his duty and i'll be very thankful i'd be a more thankful than i am already if it was any ways possible for an unfortunate to be it he makes so many of these references to the law stationer in the course of a day or two that alan after conferring with mr jarndyce good-naturedly resolves to call in cook's court the rather as the cart seems to be breaking down to cook's court therefore he repairs mr snagsby is behind his counter in his grace coat and sleeves inspecting an indenture of several skins which has just come in from the engrossers an immense desert of law hand and parchment with here and there a resting place of a few large letters to break the awful monotony and save the traveller from despair mr snagsby puts up at one of these inky wells and greets the stranger with his cough of general preparation for business you don't remember me mr snagsby the stationer's heart begins to thump heavily for his old apprehensions have never abated it is as much as he can do to answer no sir i can't say i do i should have considered not to put too fine a point upon it that i never saw you before sir twice before says alan woodcourt once at a poor bedside and once it's come at last thinks the afflicted stationer as recollection breaks upon him it's got to a head now and it's going to burst but he has sufficient presence of mind to conduct his visitor into the little counting-house and to shut the door are you a married man sir no i am not would you make the attempt though single says mr snagsby in a melancholy whisper to speak as low as you can for my little woman is a-listening somewheres 
or I'll forfeit the business and five hundred pound.' In deep dejection Mr. Snagsby sits down on his stool, with his back against his desk, protesting. "'I never had a secret of my own, sir. I can't charge my memory with ever having once attempted to deceive my little woman on my own account since she named the day. I wouldn't have done it, sir. Not to put too fine a point upon it, I couldn't have done it. I durstn't have done it.' whereas, and nevertheless, I find myself wrapped round with secrecy and mystery, till my life is a burden to me. His visitor professes his regret to hear it, and asks him, does he remember Joe? Mr. Snagsby answered with a suppressed groan, oh, don't he? You couldn't name an individual human being except myself that my little woman is more set and determined against than Joe, says Mr. Snagsby. Alan asks why. Why? repeats Mr. Snagsby, in his desperation clutching at the clump of hair at the back of his bald head. How should I know why? But you are a single person, sir, and may you long be spared to ask a married person such a question. With this beneficent wish, Mr. Snagsby coughs a cough of dismal resignation and submits himself to hear what the visitor has to communicate there again says mr snagsby who between the earnestness of his feelings and the suppressed tone of his voice is discolored in the face at it again in a new direction a certain person charges me in the solemnest way not to talk of joe to any one even my little woman. Then comes another certain person in the person of yourself, and charges me, in an equally solemn way, not to mention Joe to that other certain person above all other persons. Why, this is a private asylum. Why, not to put too fine a point upon it, this is Bedlam, sir, says Mr. Snagsby. But it is better than he expected, after all, being no explosion of the mind below him, or deepening of the pit into which he has fallen, and being tender-hearted and affected by the account he hears of Joe's condition, he readily engages to look round as early in the evening as he can manage it quietly. He looks round very quietly when the evening comes, but it may turn out that Mrs. Snagsby is as quiet a manager as he. Joe is very glad to see his old friend and says when they are left alone that he takes it uncommon kind as Mr. Snagsby should come so far out of his way on accounts of such as him. Mr. Snagsby, touched by the spectacle before him, immediately lays upon the table a half a crown, that magic balsam for his of all kinds of wounds. "'And how do you find yourself, my poor lad?' inquires the stationer with his cough of sympathy i am in luck mr snagsby i am returns joe and don't want for nothing i am more comfortabler nor you can't think mr snagsby i am very sorry that i done it but i didn't go for to do it sir the stationer softly lays down another half-crown and asks him what it is that he is sorry for having done mr snagsby says joe i went and give a illness to the lady as was and yet as weren't that to other lady and none of them never says nothing to me for having done it on account of their being 
sir good and my having been so unfortunate the lady comes herself and says me yesterday and she says ah joe she says we thought we'd lost you joe she says and she sits down a smiling so quiet and don't pass a word nor yet a look upon me for having done it and she don't and i turns against the wall i does mr sangsby and mr jarndyce i see him a force to turn away his own self and mr woodcott he come for to give me something for to ease me what he's always a doing one day and night and when he come a bending over me and a speaking up so bold i see his tears a falling mr sangsby the softened stationer deposits another half-crown on the table. Nothing less than a repetition of that infallible remedy will relieve his feelings. "'What I was a-thinking on, Mr. Sangsby,' proceeds Joe, "'was as you was able to write very large, perhaps.' "'Yes, Joe, please God,' returns the stationer. "'Uncommon precious large, perhaps,' says Joe with eagerness. "'Yes, my poor boy.' joe laughs with pleasure what i was a-thinking on then mr sangsby was that when i was moved on as fur i ever could go and couldn't be moved no furder whether you might be so good perhaps to write out very large so that one could see it anywhere that i was very truly hearty sorry that i done it and that i never went for to do it and that though i didn't know nothing at all i knowed as mr woodcott once cried over it and was always grieved over it and that i hoped he'd be able to forgive me in his mind if the writing could be made to say it very large he might i shall say it joe very large joe laughs again thank you mr snagsby it's very kind of you sir and it makes me more comfortabler nor i was before the meek little stationer with a broken and unfinished cough slips down to his fourth half-crown he has never been so close to a case requiring so many and is fain to depart and joe and he upon this little earth shall meet no more no more for the cart so hard to draw is near its journey's end and drags over stony ground all round the clock it labours up the broken steps shattered and worn not many times can the sun rise and behold it still upon its weary road phil squad with his smoky gunpowder visage at once acts as nurse and works as armourer at his little table in a corner often looking round and saying with a nod of his green baize cap and an encouraging elevation of his one eyebrow hold up my boy hold up there too is mr jarndyce many a time and alan woodcourt almost always both thinking much how strangely fate has entangled this rough outcast in the web of very different lives there too the trooper is a frequent visitor filling the doorway with his athletic figure and from his superfluity of life and strength seeming to shed down temporary vigour upon joe who never fails to speak more robustly in answer to his cheerful words joe is in a sleep or in a stupor to-day and alan woodcourt newly arrived stands by him looking down upon his wasted form after a while he softly seats himself on upon the bedside with his face towards him just as he sat in the law-writer's room and touches his chest and heart 
the cart had very nearly given up but labours on a little more the trooper stands in the doorway still and silent phil has stopped in a low clinking noise with his little hammer in his hand mr woodcourt looks round with that grave professional interest and attention on his face and glancing significantly at the trooper signs to phil to carry his table out when the little hammer is next used there will be a speck of rust upon it well joe what is the matter don't be frightened i thought says joe who has started and is looking round i thought i was in tom all alone's again ain't there nobody here but you mr woodcock nobody and i ain't took back to tom all alone's am i sir no joe closes his eyes muttering i'm very thankful after watching him closely a little while alan puts his mouth very near his ear and says to him in a low distinct voice joe did you ever know a prayer never knowed nothing sir not so much as one short prayer no sir nothing at all mr chadbands he was a praying once at mr sangsby and i heard him but he sounded as if he was a speaking to hisself and not to me he prayed a lot but i couldn't make out nothing on it different times there was other gentlemen come down tom's all alone's praying but they mostly said as to the other ones prayed wrong and as all mostly sounded to be a talking to themselves or a passing blame on to the others and not talking to us we never know nothing i never know what it's all about it takes him a long time to say this and few but an experienced and attentive listener could hear or hearing understand him after a short relapse into sleep or stupor he makes of a sudden a strong effort to get out of bed stay joe what now it's time for me to go to that there burying ground sir he returns with a wild look lie down and tell me what burying ground joe where they laid him as was very good to me very good to me indeed he was it's time for me to go down to that there's burying ground sir and ask to be put along with him i wants to go there and be buried he used for to say to me i am as poor as you to-day joe he says I wants to tell him that I am as poor as him now, and have come there to be laid along with him. By and by, Joe, by and by. Ah, perhaps they wouldn't do it if I was to go myself, but will you promise to have me took there, sir, and laid along with him? I will indeed. Thank ye, sir, thank ye, sir. They'll have to get the key of the gate afore they can take me in, for it's always locked and there's a step there as i used to clean with my broom it's turned very dark sir is there any light a-coming it is coming fast joe fast the cart is shaken all to pieces and the rugged road is very near its end joe my poor fellow i hear you sir in the dark but i'm a-gropin a-gropin let me catch hold of your hand joe can you say what i say i'll say anything as you say sir for i know it's good our father our father yes that's very good sir which art in heaven art in heaven is the light a-comin sir it is close at hand hallowed be thy name hallowed be thy the light is come upon the dark benighted way dead dead my lords and gentlemen 
dead right reverends and wrong reverends of every order, dead men and women born with heavenly compassion in your hearts, and dying thus around us every day. End of chapter 47